Turn your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we're going to take it up this morning in verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4, and this morning's consideration is verse 28. We've entitled the message this morning from this verse, Work, the Antidote to Thievery. Work, the Antidote to Thievery. And as we take up the topic this morning, I think it would do us well to reflect back first upon the book of Deuteronomy, to think back on the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy takes place 40 years after the Exodus. The book itself, the the name means the second giving of the law. The setting for the book is on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, opposite Jericho, with a generation who had grown up during the wilderness wanderings. You remember the disobedience of the people recorded in the book of Numbers and how their refusal to enter into the land to disregard the the good report of the spies Joshua and Caleb brought about the Lord's judgment upon them. And so in consequence of their disobedience, all those from the age 20 and upward passed away. They died there. Their bodies fell in the wilderness. It was not they who would, enable, would be enabled to receive the Lord's promise of this new homeland, but it would only be that younger generation. So at the end of the 40 years wandering, those that were 20 would now be 60, and others, of course, would have been born during that wandering. And so it was time to renew the covenant, as it were. So Moses gathers the people there, and he speaks to them again. And in chapter 5 of the book of Deuteronomy, he, he gives to them again the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of God. The Eighth Commandment is, Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not steal. Interestingly, there in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy... Uh, It's recounted for us how that earlier generation had responded to God when those Ten Commandments had first been given to them 40 years before. The people were terrified of, of God as he descended upon Mount Sinai in fire and smoke. And so they begged Moses to go before God on their behalf and to hear what God would say to them and and to relay it to them. And so Moses does just that. And the people hear through Moses the word of God, and the people say, we will obey, we will do what God has required. And the Lord is pleased with that response. But at the same time, he laments. And what he laments is the reality that they will not fulfill their best pledge and obligation that there is a defect that lies within them that will make them unable to fulfill that which they have just pledged to do. That defect lies within their hearts. Their hearts are corrupt, and they will be unable to do even that which they, in that moment, desire to do. It's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 5, beginning in verse 27, and it's a flashback. But there it's recorded, go near and hear all that the Lord our God says, the people say to Moses, then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. See, there was a problem with the Israelites, and it's the same problem that all of mankind has, and that is 
We need a new heart. We need a new heart. We need a heart in which resides the Spirit of God himself, who will write his law there within our heart and will, will empower and move and motivate us to live in accordance with his law. In order to gain true victory, in order to truly be obedient to the Lord, we must have a new heart. And that is the essence of the new covenant. That is the essence of what the, the prophets foresaw. So we find in the, in the words of Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 31, for example, where the prophet says, beginning in verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The prophet Ezekiel, looking forward again to that same time, writes in Ezekiel 36, and beginning in verse 24, for I will take you from the nations and, and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. The new heart, the heart that the prophet calls the heart of flesh, not the heart of stone. The, the indwelling spirit of God, the, the writing of the law upon the human heart comes about by what is known as the new birth. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, you must be born again. You must be born again. That is not a command to be obeyed. That is a statement of fact. It is a reality unless one is born again, unless one receives the new heart, the birth from above, then one cannot see the kingdom of God. John himself in chapter 1 and verse 13, speaking of the fact that the new birth is from above, he says that it is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. In other words, it comes from God by grace alone, to us through faith alone, on the merits of Jesus Christ alone in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the means of the new birth. And when one places faith alone in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, one receives the new birth. One is justified in the sight of God. One becomes a citizen of the kingdom of God. So here we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. And Paul writes, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has needs. Why? Why does Paul write to Christian people, believers, those who have received the new birth, those who have received the new heart, those who are, who are recipients of the new covenant in whom the Spirit of God does reside? Why does he write to them and find it necessary to write to them to tell them to stop stealing. To tell them to stop stealing. Why? 
The answer, of course, is, is found in the nature of our salvation. It is found in the nature of salvation. What do, I, what do I mean by that statement? What I mean is this, is when we become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything changes. Everything changes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is a reality. And that change is real. And that change is permanent. It, it only, the door only swings in one direction. And that change is instantaneous. And that change is comprehensive in principle. In principle. But it reveals itself progressively over time. As the indwelling Spirit of God gains territory, as it were, within the human heart as there is a growing love for God and for His Word and, and commitment to be obedient to His Word. It is, the, it is the process of growing in Christ. In other words, when we become Christians, we become what, in the words of the great reformer Martin Luther, who coined this Latin phrase, simul ustis et peccator. In other words, we are at the same time both righteous and sinners. This is the nature of our salvation. Simul ustis et peccator. Listen to the words of R.C. Sproul as he speaks about this reality. He says, and I quote, with this formula, Luther was saying, in our justification, we are one and at the same time righteous or just and sinners. Now, if he would say that we are at the same time and in the same relationship, just and sinners, that would be a contradiction of terms. But that is not what he is saying. He was saying from one perspective, in one sense, we are just. In another sense, from a different perspective, we are sinners. And how he defines that is simple. In and of ourselves, under the analysis of God's scrutiny, we still have sin. We are sinners. We're sinners. But by imputation and by faith in Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is now transferred to our account, then we are considered just or righteous. Sproul goes on to write, this is the very heart of the gospel. And he is right. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, He, that is the Father, made him, that would be Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ that makes us just before God. But the hard reality of the matter is, my friends, we are still sinners, and we still do struggle with sin, and will continue to struggle with sin until the Lord either returns to take home his bride, the church, or we pass from this life and to wake in the presence of Jesus. So in light of this gospel reality, we turn now to consider Paul's instructions in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. This verse is a perfect example of the process of biblical change, the putting off and the putting on. The putting off of the flesh with its habits and its thought processes and its dispositions and the putting on of Jesus Christ. To begin to live out the reality of who we are in Christ, the new creation. To replace the old with the new. We don't just stop bad habits. We don't just break bad habits. We replace them with godly habits. 
with Christ-honoring thoughts and behaviors. And, and between the putting off and the putting on of the new, there is the renewal of the mind, the thinking of God's thoughts after him. And verse 28 here is a perfect illustration of that reality. So we're going to look at the passage together, this one verse, and we will have the most simplest of outlines. Three simple and direct commands. That's the grammatical structure. Three simple and direct commands. The first is the putting off. Stop stealing. Stop stealing. He who steals must steal no longer, Paul says. He who steals must steal no longer. What is stealing? What does it mean to steal? One definition that has been offered is this, and I quote, the act of taking property from another without permission and in secret, close quote. It's a pretty good definition. It would comport with what you would find in most dictionaries. The act of taking property from another without permission and in secret. Stealing. Stealing is a fundamental problem for humanity. And it has always been that way. It has plagued humanity from the, ancient, from the most ancient times, and, and it was a very serious concern in the ancient world. Both then and now, there is a direct connection between stealing and indolence. Indolence. In other words, laziness, slothfulness, a refusal to work. Anywhere you go in the world where stealing is a problem, you will find indolence. They go hand in hand. And it is especially true among the godless. Among the godless. And beloved, when I look around at me, around me, and I see the growing laziness of our culture, one does not have to be a prophet to predict that stealing is everywhere and will continue to grow. It will continue to grow. In some civilizations, they seek to deal with stealing or theft with a penalty of maiming. Maiming. In other words, cutting off hands, slicing off ears or chopping off noses. That was an ancient penalty, and it is still used in some cultures even today to deal with theft. But interestingly and instructively, the law of Moses dealt with theft through a system of restitution. Restitution. In other words, the thief paid back multiple times over that which was Stolen, And in, in the process of doing that, it created an instructable link between work and, and theft. Because the two are tied together. The penalty fit the crime. It fit the crime. We live in a culture of theft culture of theft. Stealing is incredibly prevalent today. Let me give you some examples to drive home this point. Because you may be sitting here and thinking, oh, I don't steal. Wait till I finish my list. Some of the ways that people steal today. Tax cheats. Tax cheats. In other words, people who prepare their tax re uh, return with inflated or, or bogus deductions. Or underreport or fail to report income. That's theft. 
There is employee theft. Employees stealing from their employer. According to one report by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 75% of employees steal from their workplace, and most do it repeatedly. Did you hear that number? 75% steal from their employers. I've got a number of statistics here, by the way, and I don't know the truthfulness of them all, obviously. And they may be off by a factor because they could be low. They could be low. People steal through dishonest goods and services. In other words, knockoffs. Representing something to to be a brand name good when it's not. Or not providing the service that has been paid for. I know of a family who paid a roofer who had an ichthus on their business card to do a a re-roof of their home. It's a three-story home, and it's an older couple who had no ability to climb the ladder and to see the quality of the work that was done only to find out later, years later, that the work had not been done. That this person whose references came from churches had moved out of state and wasn't available to make good on the work. It's stolen the money. Stolen the money. People steal through dishonest weights and measures. Down counting. You know what down counting is? That's when you charge the same price, but you only, uh, the one pound coffee can is no longer one pound. The half gallon of ice cream is no longer a half a gallon. It's down counting. Governments steal through inflation when they continue to print currency units and, and drop them into circulation and steal the purchasing power of every other dollar already in existence in the economy. And by the way, your government is good at this. $15 trillion good. People steal by withholding wages from contractors who come and do the work, and then the the people say, I'm just not going to pay you, or I'll pay you half. Those of you in the trades, I'm sure you've experienced this. People steal through shoplifting. One website says, quote, the loss of inventory from stores due to causes including shoplifting and employee theft cost the U.S. retail industry nearly $48.9 billion in the year 2016. By the way, companies don't lose money. They merely take the loss, divide it by the number of products that are sold, and tack it onto everybody's bill. So shoplifters are stealing from you. They're stealing from you. People steal through unauthorized samples at the grocery store. Yeah. Go to Costco and they offer the samples. Take the samples, eat and enjoy, but don't go to Vaughn's and take an apple off the rack and eat it. And believe me, I have seen it happen on more than one occasion. That's stealing. That's stealing. People steal by abusing return policies. Again, I quote from from an article. This one's a few years old, but it says, the industry estimates retailers lose $9 billion a year to amateur and professional crooks who get money back for stolen merchandise or exploit return policies in other ways. The online retailer, L.L. Bean, who used to have a no-questions-asked, full-return policy no matter how long you owned, you know, guaranteed satisfaction no matter how long you owned the product, just retracted it. 
And the reason they retracted it is because over and over again they were finding people were going to yard sales and buying old, used L.L. Bean merchandise and returning it for full credit. That's stealing. That's stealing. People steal from hotels regularly. People steal things like towels and washcloths and bed linens and pillows and bathrobes and slippers and artwork. And some people steal the batteries out of the remotes. I'm not kidding you. It's amazing. People even steal the Bibles from the nightstand. Restaurant employees who give away free drinks and meals to their friends are stealing from their employer. Again, an internet article, latest survey we found specific to restaurant theft was conducted in 2004 by the National Restaurant Association. In this report, they stated that theft represented on average 4% of a restaurant's total food cost. 4% stolen. By bartenders handing out free drinks. Waiters and waitresses giving away meals. Undercharging to friends. We steal through copyright violations. Software. Music. Movies. Again, it's estimated that more than $12.5 billion in revenues to musical artists, producers, and songwriters is lost every year due to piracy. Do you have stolen merchandise on your phone? On your computer? If you do, by the way, this is one of the easiest sins to repent of. Delete. 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 People steal through plagiarism. Plagiarism. In other words, they steal other people's thoughts and words and ideas and they pass them off as their own. Plagiarism. It occurs at all levels, including professional writers are guilty of plagiarism. People steal by goofing off at work. The average worker admits to frittering away three hours per eight-hour workday, and that doesn't include breaks and lunch. We steal our employer's money by goofing off at work. We steal by the personal use of company property, copy machines, office supplies, Pads of paper, pens, pencils, stamps, envelopes, you name it. We steal through insurance fraud. Last estimate I saw was $80 billion per year of insurance fraud. You know, that's when you have a loss and you you puff it up, right? People steal through title transfer fraud. That's when you buy a used car and you go to retitle the car and you you put in the box how much you paid for it, a number less than you paid for it in order to avoid the taxes. That's theft. It's theft. People steal through welfare fraud. Federal and state welfare fraud is estimated at $50 billion a year. $50 billion a year. People steal through Medicare, waste, abuse, and fraud. One estimate was $140 billion a year. $140 billion a year. People steal by keeping silent when the store clerk hands you back too much change and you put it in your pocket 
or they under-ring you or forget to charge something and it ends up in your shopping cart. And you get home and you go, hooray, the Lord has blessed me. No, the Lord hasn't blessed you. He has tested you. And you have failed. Because you have stolen something. And you want to freak out the retailer? Take it back. Because they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with it. They're so used to people stealing from them. They don't even have an accounting category to handle it. People steal by taking change off their father's dresser or putting their hand into their mother's purse and pulling out a $10 bill. Young and old, Christian and non-Christian, we are a culture of theft. We are a people who steal. And so, beloved, Paul's words here in verse 28 to the Ephesian believers are words to you and I this morning. They relate directly to us. Yes, we are Christian. Yes, we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, our sin has been fully atoned for by Jesus Christ. We are are righteous in the sight of God the Father, wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. We are a child of God. And yet we violate the Eighth Commandment all the time. All the time. Paul is writing to these believers and by application to you and I and saying we must bring this area of our lives under gospel control. In other words, we must put off that associated with the old man, with the, with the man without Christ. In other words, in the simplest terms, we are to stop stealing. Stop stealing. Secondly, we had to work hard. The next simple and direct command is this, work hard. Work hard. Stop stealing, work hard. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. In place of stealing, Paul would have us put on the habit, notice the but rather, the contrast here, it would put us, have us put on the habit of hard work. That's the replacement. That's the replacement. The word labor here, kapiao in the Greek, it denotes hard work, work to the point of exhaustion or weariness. Hard work. Paul uses the same verb to speak of his own ministry in Galatians chapter 4 where he labored among them, he says, kapiao. He, he worked among them to the point of exhaustion. He uses it over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 in reference to the Thessalonian elders. And he says to honor them because they, kapiao, they labor to the point of weariness among you. They work hard. Stop stealing, but rather, instead, labor, work hard, performing with his own hands what is good. Notice this reference, with his own hands. That just further emphasizes the verb here, the idea of hard work, of hard work. And in particular, that the ancient notion that to, that to work with your hands is honest work. When he says to work with your hands, it, it, it connotes hard labor and it connotes honest labor. Work with your hands. It was always seen as honest labor. Performing with his own hands, Paul says, what is good? What is good? In other words, what is, what is beneficial to others? That's what makes it good. What is beneficial to others? In other words, they are to replace the ungodly view of work with a godly one. The thief has an ungodly view of work because he he sees it as a means to get what he wants. And so if you can get what you want uh, through a minimal amount of effort, stealing 
then that's what you will do. That's what you will do. If you see work as something to be avoided, as a, as a, as a sort of a necessary you know, evil of this life, then you will seek to avoid work. And the ultimate person who seeks to avoid work is the thief. Is the thief. But notice Paul. He ties the, his, his mandate here to hard work to the need for generosity. Do you see it here? Performing with his own hands what is good. In other words, what is beneficial to other people. This, this models really what it means to, to be converted even. This, this put-off, put-on process. I mean, this, this is an illustration of conversion. It's to, it's to be living one way and then to be living another. We could say the thief becomes the philanthropist, right? Notice again where he says that, that uh, at the end of the verse here, so he has something to share. It's the idea of generosity. Talk about a thief becoming a philanthropist, and I'm reminded of a wee little man in the New Testament. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, he was a tree trimmer. <laughs> Old Zacchaeus. All right, Luke 19. Luke 19. I'll take you there just to read it because I think it illustrates this reality. Stop stealing. Start working hard so that you have something to give. Verse 1, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and, and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. The Mosaic Law. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Half of my possessions to the poor. His conversion produced a generous heart and a repentance of his thefts. Stop stealing. Work hard. And third, give generously. Give generously. Stop stealing. Work hard. Right? Put off stealing. Put on hard work. And to renew your mind to see work differently. Give generously. Give generously. Again, Paul's words. He who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Notice Paul's linkage here, direct linkage between hard work and Christian sharing, Christian generosity. This is the renewal of the mind that has to take place. When is a thief no longer a thief? A thief is no longer a thief, not when they just stop stealing. It's when they stop stealing, get a job, and start giving to other people. That's the process. Beloved, we need, when it comes to work, we, we need a, a new way of thinking about work. 
a new way of thinking. We need to see the, the fruit of our labors as, as not something that belongs to us. Something that we, that we have rule over and, and can spend or, or squander any way we choose. That it's our money. It's our fruit. I mean, we might give it to a family member perhaps, but it's ours. Instead, what we need to see is that, is that we are part of a community of believers. We are our brother's keepers. In other words, we have obligations and we have responsibilities together as a, as a family of believers to give generously so we have something to share with the one who has need. Jesus said in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, by the way, Jesus didn't speak it there in Acts 20 and verse 35, Paul cites Jesus and says, Jesus said these words, which you can't find in the Gospels, which is a whole other interesting discussion, right? But Paul says, Jesus said, Acts 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Beloved, God lavishes us with his grace. He provides superabundantly for us. At the spiritual realm, we have, we have all the riches in Christ Jesus, right? We have all that we could possibly, beyond what we could imagine. We're co-heirs with Christ. And God also provides materially and often abundantly with us. Often abundantly. And in light of the fact that he's generous with us, we need to be generous with others. Christian people ought to be the most generous people there are. If we think about how generous God has been with us, it moves us to generosity. And that includes being generous with people that are in very difficult places. Right? Notice it. With him who has need. To be generous with people in hard spots, even if the hard spot is of their own making. Even if the hard spot is of their own making. thinking about this, this obligation to be generous. When we consider this, I think there are a couple of things to be mindful of in that process of being generous. Okay? We need to be generous with the fruit of our own labor, not the fruit of others. Okay? You understand what I'm saying to you? We need to be generous with the fruit of our own labor. Labor. It's really easy to be generous with other people's money. Reminds me of a kind of a funny thing that happened at a church one, uh, one Sunday night. Uh, they were supposed to pray for the offering and they forgot and so the pastor came up and, and, um, and he said, oh, I want everybody to stand up here and I want you to reach to the pocket of the person in front of you and pull out their wallet and give like you've never given before. <laughs> right? I mean, it is really easy to be generous with other people's money. It's difficult to be generous with our own. That also is, by the way, um, the problem with the modern welfare state. It's the problem with the modern welfare state, and that is it is not based on generosity. It is based on a coerced income redistribution scheme. A shameless plug for you. But in the training hour, we have been teaching on the, vocation, or the doctrine of vocation, the theology of work. And this next two weeks, I have given over to work and welfare. And so if you don't, if you're interested in the topic of what the Bible has to say about welfare, then I invite you to come and hear what it has to say. But be generous. That's the point here. I want to lose it. Be, be generous, but be generous with your own fruit. Right? You remember David? He says he will not offer to the Lord 
something that cost him nothing. It cost him nothing. So be generous with the fruit of your own labor. And, and then secondly, I would just say as a caveat, is that generosity is, generosity is extended to those who have need. You see it there in the verse. To share with those who have need. Again, I, don't, I think we've got to, to maintain this connection with work in all of this. Okay? Think about Paul's words to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Right, 2 Thess 3. Picking it up in verse 6. Paul says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have a right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. What example? Hard work. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. What's the good? It's caring for those who really have need. Caring for those who really have need. There is an obligation. There is an obligation that we share here as a community of believers, as a local family of God, to care for the needs of those who are part of this fellowship. And it's all of our responsibilities. We're blessed to have a, a benevolence fund that the deacons oversee and that has been, has been funded through the generous gifts of certain individuals and even con congregational offerings. But we shouldn't just rely on that. In a sense, that would be doing good with other people's money. I think there's a challenge in this passage for all of us to test our own hearts and to see whether we will personally open our wallets or not to someone who is in need. But if they are not willing to work, Paul's pretty clear, then let them not eat. For a hungry belly is sometimes the best motivator for the work ethic. Beloved, how do we summarize all this? I think the best way to summarize it is in the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. He says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good. There's that word again. Let us do good. Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Work, godly work, is the antidote to thievery. May the Spirit of God apply the truth to our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, your word both wounds and heals. The law brings us face to face with your character, your holiness, your righteousness, your exacting standards. And we are undone. We recognize how far short we fall. We're terrified 
And were we to be left in that position, we would be without hope. But we are not. For the word of God that wounds is the word of God that heals. And in the truth and the reality of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ, that he stepped in front of the bullet, as it were, that he took our place, that he bore on his body on the tree, in his own soul, the weight of the guilt of our sin. All the condemnation that the law brings, he took upon himself. And he consumed it, that not a drop remains. We who are united with him by faith, now clothed in his righteousness, can call you Abba, Father, can draw close, that we are not terrified as at the foot of Mount Sinai. But there is a, like a moth to a flame. We are, we are drawn close by the love of Christ. And our Father, as we are drawn close, we are also made aware that we do not live in accordance with our best desires. That we are weak, we are frail, that we often forget that we often doubt, that we often slip and slide and fall into sin. So, O oh Lord, as we think about the Eighth Commandment and the implications of it with regard to thievery, our Father, we are convicted. We are convicted. We pray, O oh Lord, for your help. As you shower your grace upon us, grace that it comes through the gospel, that we, we would not turn back in on ourselves in discouragement and despair, but instead we would repent where we need to, that we would turn, that we would put off, that we would put on, that we would be renewed in our minds through the truth of the gospel. And Father, that we would be a people of honesty and integrity. That we would be a people that are an accurate reflection of Christ. Help us. These things we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.